What is up, everyone? I am Chris Sinclair. Welcome to the Good Ball Podcast, and I am joined by my fellow host, Drew Garrison. We are a couple of self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience, reaching back to the day of, days of washing dishes and cleaning pizza ovens all the way to owning multiple businesses and selling some of the most exclusive brands in the world. Our goal is to walk you through today's most interesting alcohol industry headlines while sipping on some amazing drinks as we do it. Drew, what are we covering today, buddy? Well, Chris, tonight's episode, we are going to be tasting some pretty awesome whiskeys, but not giving you any creepy tasting notes. Uh, And our stories are going to consist of Anheuser-Busch's bid for Polynesian dominance has failed. Uh, Insider training pairs well with cognac, question mark. And we jump into the main event, which is the Jim Murray Whiskey Bible. And you think that we'll be talking about whiskey reviews, but we'll not. It's so, so much worse than that. But before we get to that. Chris, what are you drinking? <laughs> I am I am sipping on some Blanton's, my friend. Oh, my gosh. That's super elusive Blanton's. Oh, the, the stuff that you can't find except for at Costco and... Your corner liquor store, but only when they get it. Yep. Uh, my cork has an L on it, by the way, just for anybody who's curious. Anyone who's looking for the L cork. Can you give some explanation to why somebody would look for the letter L on their cork? Yeah, because if you collect all the letters, the uh, spelling out Blanton's with the two N's, uh, they're different. Uh, then you send them in. Blanton's will send you back a mounted version of all those corks and uh, the headpiece on the bottle, which is a, uh, a jockey on a horse um, uh, ends up with uh, looking like a horse in full stride when you have every single one of those letters. So, yeah, it's actually pretty cool. And one of the few reasons to actually collect a whiskey yeah, it's pretty neat. And 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 had they thought that this whiskey would be as elusive or as sought after as it is, uh, they might not have done it. But but it it at the time when Blanton's was created, and uh, you know, being the original single barrel whiskey, they um, no one really cared about bourbon. Really? So uh, they just were creating things to get people to pay attention. And in this case, you know, it it kind of worked. And now people can't, you know, I get like I get like five to ten phone calls a day about Blanton's now at the shop. Yeah, I um, I did a whiskey tasting last week and it was single malts from around the world. And I feel like everybody had a really good time and we tasted some really amazing stuff, right? So at the very end, the guy that I was co-hosting with asked the group, and because we had done this virtually, he's like, does anybody have any questions for Drew? This guy goes, yeah, I have this question. And mind you, we've been on this call for the past hour talking single malts. How do I get Blanton's? And it was just (laughs) like... (laughs) 
I mean, it's a fair question to someone who might know the answer. Yeah, I guess. I just, you know, you spend over an hour talking about everything but bourbon, and that's still the only thing anybody wants to know about is bourbon. Why do you you think the Blantons is so sought after? Is it the mounting horses or... What, sure. what do you think it is? I think I think it's a total package. Um, I think the entire the entire bottling the package of Lantons looks great. You know, it looks like the Monty Python Holy Hand Grenade. Um, it's got the it's got the horse on top. It's a sexy looking bottle. Um, the the script that's on the label, you know, is this like beautiful filigreed cursive uh looks like it stems from the time of uh of the founding fathers of america that everything about it looks like it's og and um and if you haven't had it there's no way to know that it's not good right right and uh and everybody who has had it will tell you that it is good uh, because it is it's it's great whiskey um it it's spicy it's hot it um it's single barrel so it changes in flavor profile uh which at least a well you know a while ago maybe like 15 years ago was that relatively unheard of you know that that wasn't really a thing so when i, I imagine when like pappy van winkle started getting acclaims when it got written up one whiskey of the world so on and so forth then all of a sudden people started like really paying attention to bourbons. Um, Cause you, you got to remember in the eighties, nineties, it wasn't a thing people paid attention to at that point in time. It was single malt scotches, you know, and that's, that's what people were really paying attention to They you know, bl- that's why we still fight the, the sort of the misperception of blended scotches that we have now is because everybody wanted those single malts in the higher years and the higher malts and, uh, and how delicate well, or not, how different they not were. The 80s. Not the no, 80s. Not the 80s for single malts. Sorry, 90, yeah. 90s and early aughts. Yeah. I mean, it, it sort of started in the 80s, but but really it was the 90s and early aughts for, for single malts. But in the 80s, you had like the whiskey lock, which is, you know, there was enough whiskey floating around Scotland to fill its own lake and that's when you had massive closures all across scotland because distilleries just there was nowhere for their whiskey to go so nobody was making money um yeah no one cared I mean, about it yeah i mean really if you think like during the 80s and into the 90s it really was more so vodka you know it was the clear spirits that were that were controlling everything and then single malt started to make the comeback followed there quickly by by bourbons and then yeah just the the takeover of American bourbon was just crazy. Yeah. It still remains crazy. I mean, and it's still vodka, right? I mean, vodka is still one of the highest selling categories in the world. Um, and and we we dive deep into that at a later date, but that's it still exists and it still exists for a reason. Uh, I blame uh, the 60s, sorry, the 70s and 80s with like the, the high cocaine usage and uh, – as to you know why people really love vodka, but uh, we can, like I said, we, <laughs> we can get back to that a little bit later. 
Uh, you know, as, we might have a dedicated as, episode. <laughs> as for as for Blanton's, uh, man, it's it's good booze, but it's it's single barrel, and by definition, it just makes it harder to get. You know, it's smaller batches. Um, it's 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 going to be in demand if more than the amount of bottles that they make out of a barrel are wanted. Uh, I mean, they they pour off enough barrels every year and it's definitely grown in demand. And, but it's now there's nothing you're going to do. It's a single, it's a single barrel whiskey. So there's only so much that you possibly can have. And therefore it sort of creates its own demand just based on that. As long as somebody wants it. I think that, that there's as of right now, just like with Pappy, there's a lot of people who just simply haven't had it and they just want to get their hands on it. Yeah, I recently um, had seen uh, like a whole case stack in Canada of Blanton's and it was, you know, just kind of shows you how regional sometimes that popularity can be. Whereas, you know, here, a case stack of Blanton's would never exist. I mean, it's a situation where it ends up at a total wine and the text goes out. It's like, hey, just go and ask the counter. Is it behind the counter? I actually had a friend of mine who was looking for a bottle of Blanton's for her husband for his birthday. And she was like, Hey, he really likes this. And you know, how can you get it? And I was like, okay, well, of course he really likes it, um, but it's going to be hard to get. You might have to pay secondary. And then the next day uh, I received, you know, basically received that text like, Oh, Hey, Blanton's is at total wine. If anybody wants it. And then just told her, I was like, Hey, go over to total wine, ask him if it's behind the counter. And she was able to get it at normal retail and not secondary. So, Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So but I mean, it, even, even with, you know, secondary or not secondary with the influence of secondary on secondary being secondary market, which means after, after retail. Uh, so uh, even, even with just the influence of the secondary market on retail prices, the fact that somebody can buy a bottle and then resell it at twice the price, three times the price due to its exclusivity um, it's, it's definitely had an influence on retail prices because why not, you know, as retail shops, we're just trying to survive. We're just trying trying to pay our bills. We're trying to pay our rent. You know, it's not like, it's not a, a fun gamble. You know, <laughs> we, we make very, uh, strategic choices in where we spend our money so that way we can like survive as a business. So, um, uh, that, influence of the secondary market on on your primary retail taking a bottle for blanton's which you know i sell for 60 bucks um i've seen as high as you know 120 200 you know but the very first time i got a bottle of blanton's into the shop which i had to wheel and deal for i sold it at 99 and people got so mad at me they got so mad at me, you know, and you know, someone was like, Hey, these prices over here are super affordable. And then on Instagram, I had a bunch of, or on Facebook, I had a bunch of laughing emojis and I was like, all right, fuck you guys. <laughs> like, I don't like, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm just, trying, well, I'm just trying to survive as a business, but uh, yeah. people get, people get mad at you when you're, when you, uh, they, you know, they call it gouging and, and what have you. Um, and that's fair to an extent, right? Like there's, there, there's a point where it just becomes ridiculous where you're like, well, yeah, someone will pay this in a year 
which at that point in time, I, I think as a retailer, it costs you more money to leave something on the shelf at that price than it does to just turn it and get return business. But that's, you know, somebody else's philosophy on, on their business. Well, yeah, well, ultimately, like when that guy asked me that question last week, I just told him, you know, it comes down to loyalty. Go develop a relationship with your with your local liquor store. Spend time, you know, spend time there. Spend your money there. Get your daily drinkers there. And hopefully when the time comes and he has an opportunity at Blanton's, you get a shot at it, you know. And I, yeah. I can't stress that enough. There's just, you know, these people who pride themselves on being hunters. You know, it's not a situation where, you know, if you go in, like for you, if you have to buy a bunch of stuff you don't want, you know, whether it be cases of vodka or, you know, cases of gin or whatever, you know, peanut butter whiskey they're trying to push on you at that time, you know, then they're like, if you buy a bunch of these, then we'll give you those. You know, you're not requiring customers to do that. And I always think it's ridiculous when people are upset at retailers for, for having to mark up stuff because it's like, well, I had to buy three cases of crap in order to get a case of that. And even a case might be generous, you know? So well, I also think it's ridiculous when people don't want to explore within the category they claim to love so much. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, like, yeah. like you, you, you claim to love Blanton's, you claim to love Pappy and yeah, they're delicious, but there's easily 50 other whiskeys that I could point you to, uh, that are just as good. Not the same juice by any means, but they're just as good. And, you'll have a fun experience. You'll spend a quarter of the cost. It, I obviously it depends on where you're buying it, right? Like if you're buying Blanton's for me, it's 60 bucks, but like I could point you to a $40 bottle, you know, or a $50 bottle or a $20, $25 bottle. That's super delicious. Still, you know, still fantastic bourbons, uh, and bourbon given, given the laws that, that, really define what bourbon is makes it so that way it's hard to have a shitty bourbon. Right. Yeah. You, know, you yeah. spend $15 on a bourbon and it's still going to be bourbon. And it's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, there's no doubt about that. Oh, well you went the American route. So of course I had to go the Scottish route and tonight I am sipping on my absolute favorite whiskey in the world. Oh shit. And that is the Kilhoman 100% Isla. This is the 10th edition of it. And this year they mix it up a little bit because they got a little bit of sherry cask in there in addition to the typical uh, bourbon cask that they age in. So they did a minimum of nine years and then they've added together 39 bourbon barrels and two Oloroso sherry cask. So what makes this Kilhoman stand out from the rest, because I really do like, you know, pretty much the whole lineup, is the barley that they use for this whiskey is grown on Isla. So we've had discussions before about terroir and the influence of the terroir. And, you know, I think there's a case to be made for it and there's a case to be made against it. What I love about this whiskey is that despite there being those peat levels, I've always felt like the salinity on it has balanced it out really nicely and it just makes it really fun to, to drink. Now, again, this is, this is one that kind of changes and there's variants on it each year, but um, I've loved everyone. I got turned on to this 
when I first started working for JVS three years ago. So the first one I had was the seventh edition. And um, it's just such a beautiful whiskey. And I love it so much. And obviously there's some inherent bias there. But I will say that this is the one bottle that I buy every single year that it comes out without question. And I usually only get one of them because I just like to drink it throughout the year and then I usually wrap it up right before the next one comes out because it is a consistent, you know, consistently in the in the fall. But uh, yeah, it's just such a great whiskey. And I'm so excited that people really loved it this year. This is actually the first year where we sold it out in like 48 hours, which is amazing. Oh, that's rad. You know, so that's I mean, really like, Kilhoman, Kilhoman just continues to grow in popularity and it's really fun to see these guys succeed and to have such a loyal following. Um, and that's totally, and it's just because they make great whiskey and I love this one so much. What, what about this one in particular do you love? I think that, I think it's just the fact that, you know, they, they build a distillery in 2005, right? And it's the first distillery that has been constructed on Isla in over a hundred years and they're so unique. And I think that's actually that, and I might be just leaning into one of their, one of their um, marketing slogans, which is like uniquely Isla, uh, <laughs> which I, I think they might've transitioned a little bit, but they, they emphasize the farming aspect of their distillery, like quite a bit. And in fact, it's, um, I mean, they call it now like a single farm, single malt, and they call it the farm distillery. And to see people being in control of so much of the process, because, you know, a lot of people within, um, within the scotch industry, like, you know, they're buying their barley from, from every which place. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's very much so the standard. Uh, it just, you know, this is more like the roots of scotch where people grew their own barley, malted it, fermented it, distilled, you know, aged. That's kind of how most things did. As scotch grew bigger, things started to get second, you know, kind of parsed out and you had people okay now you have your farmers now you have your you know distillers your blenders and all this different stuff you know this this project is is a true representation of everything isla you know from the barley all the way through the fermentation the distillation everything and i just think that's really cool and i think that's really awesome that this is um that's the type of expression. Now, Bruglotti used to do one that was similar to this as well, but then Kilhoman bought the farm that they pulled from. So I don't think Bruglotti is going to be doing that anymore. But that was also a really, really great whiskey. Um, but I think that's why I end up liking it so much is just because nobody on Isla is doing anything like this now. You know, it's just these guys. And to have, when you can control so much of the process, you can really guarantee the quality at the very end of it. I'm I'm gonna agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, I I I I love Kilhoman, and it's a brand that I will always support um, for the foreseeable future, unless they, I don't know, fuck something up. But I can't imagine that they will. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. the, the the booze coming out of there is just super delicious, and you and I have this. Um, we have the saying of, you know, certain spirits and certain brands that, that are just criminally underappreciated. You know, this, this is one spring bank being another 
Yeah. Uh, it tends to be a lot of scotches, I guess, that you and I go off about. But, uh, <laughs> uh, this particular, though, the, the 10th edition, I think you turned me on to, you might have even given me some of the 7th edition. I And you're going to have to forgive me because I, I don't remember exactly. We've consumed a lot of booze together. Um, but I definitely, rem- I definitely remember the eighth, um, being the first time being turned on to the, the hundred percent, this bottle, as soon as it came in, I, I grabbed one off my own shelf and bought it and cracked it open. Cause I could not wait to taste it, to see what it came out as. Um, and, and I guess for our listeners, I should, I should tell people that I am a Lagavulin 16 guy. That is sort of my litmus test. That is that is my booze. That's my desert island scotch. Um, this this booze, in comparison to something like that, is cleaner. It's less sweet. It's a little bit drier. Um, it's almost refreshing uh, in comparison. Um, there's something really, really spectacular that I'm tr- still trying to unravel in this bottle in terms of the flavor. It's not like a caramel note, but it's, it's like this multi vegetalness that is just really spectacular that I haven't really experienced in another bottle of, of scotch in, in quite a while. And I think that's what makes this really special. I, I really like this, this bottle. I think it's exceptional. Um, and especially for for a limited edition bottle, I think it's it's worth every single fucking penny that you're going to spend on it. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's and it's what like a hundred dollar, hundred and ten dollar bottle. Yeah, yeah. So and it's entirely worthwhile. Yeah. So if, you know, we're we're obviously always trying to get you guys to buy stuff, but buy this one definitely. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, for um, sure. All right. So uh, now that we've we've gone through some of our tasty notes, it's time for our opinion on facts we've heard from reputable sources. So the DOJ just approved the sale and buyout of Anheuser Bush and the Craft Brew Alliance, and part of that deal is when they do complete the purchase, which is a $220 million deal, they have to sell off Kona Brewery. And the reason being is because had they not have they not done that, they would have controlled 41% of the market share on the island of Hawaii. So the Department of Justice came in, said that's just going to be too close to monopoly and will lead to unfair business practices. So part of their deal is buying it and then selling off Kona Brewery within the next, I think, I think three to six months. So, Chris, with this being the case, should the DOGA be dictating the terms of big buyouts like this? Yeah, fuck yeah, they should. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, especially for someone like Anheuser Busch. Um, uh, I honestly, with this DOJ. Politics aside, I, I'm surprised that they did. Um, this this tends to be something that that feels like it would be right in this administration's wheelhouse. But 
I'm glad they they told him to sell off Kona. Uh, it probably wasn't just Kona, but it, it was probably like this is the most obvious percentage wise of like you you can't you can't have this. And Anheuser Busch has been in in the game of buying up shit all up and down the West Coast in the last like five ten years. Uh, they they've been doing a great job, at, you know, at it business wise of, of cornering the market in that way, but they're getting really really close. And I, I don't think, especially on an island like like Hawaii or an archipelago like Hawaii, I don't think they should have that much control. Uh, things are already so expensive there. Um, it would be like if there was a single milk producer. You know, you could you could drive up the cost of milk or you could drive up the cost of eggs and land is so expensive that you couldn't afford to, like, have your own cows and have your own milk, you know, so it would it would really fuck up people's daily lives. I get that beer is is somewhat of a luxury, I suppose, but it it's something that in, involves people's daily lives. And I don't think that that a company like Anheuser-Busch has the right to own or have that large of an influence over people's daily lives. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was kind of interesting because I, I don't know if, and I don't necessarily know if I understand all these things completely, but you know, part of it is, you know, they can't have any controlling interest in like actually on the Hawaiian islands, but then in the States they can have some sort of involvement. So I don't know if you understood that more than I did or if I just misread something, but it was I think I think it just comes down to um what what's available on the islands. I mean, you've been there just like I have and and definitely your your access to goods is for sure limited, right? Versus here in California where, you know, if something's not at this store, we can drive around the corner and if it's not that store, we can drive, you know, 10 minutes up the block or you know, so on and so forth. It's not the same way on the islands. And I, I don't think I'm not, you know, for a lot of our listeners who may or may not have been to the islands, they might not recognize that. Um, and that's fine and quaint if you're going to visit, but if you actually live there and that's your daily life, then that sucks. Right. Yeah. I mean, and again, like you control that much of the market, you can really price people out. So I guess uh, good on the DOJ for, saying no to, like I said, the Polynesian dominance that Anheuser tried to execute. Yeah, I'm pretty surprised, again, with this DOJ. I I think something in this way, in this realm, is a little bit easier to see. Uh, We'll see what happens, you know, with uh, digital, (laughs) in the digital space, in the internet space, but um, I, I'm pretty happy in this day and age that people are still calling sort of bullshit on large companies. We don't, we don't see it that often, or in my opinion, often enough. The uh. so former Campari CEO, Marco Pirelli Cipo, is accused of tipping off his friend David Blee that Campari was poised to outright buy Grand Marnier. This prompted Blee to make an unusual investment, according to prosecutors, in which he made a whopping $40,000. Marco obviously denies that this is the case, and at 77-year-old, he is not 
He is not worried about the fines that could be levied against him, but rather that his reputation is being tarnished at this time. Chris, do you think insider trading took place at this fancy dinner party? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll put it as simply as this. I think wealthy people are going to do what wealthy people do, which is talk to each other and help each other out. And sometimes it might be, might feel inconsequential. It might just seem like rumors, but if that's your wealth of information and you're getting it from other people who are in the know and you can profit off of it, then that in fact is insider trading. I don't just because it happens to be convenient or inconvenient Insider trading doesn't need to happen to be, you know, I don't know, some fool from, you know, across town who calls you up and out of nowhere who you don't know and goes, hey, bub, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but if you look inside my trench coat, I've got a ticket here for you. This got everything that's going to happen. example. <laughs> Jesus. That's true. I've I've gone from like Wall Street <laughs> to like the guy who's selling watches out of his trench coat. Anyway, I think a lot of people when they when they think about insider trading, I think that they assume that there's some sort of malice involved. Or 100%. That's exactly what I thought. Yes. I I tend to I tend to fall into the line of thinking that insider trading just happens to be your uh just happens to be your life. And if people aren't careful in sharing that information, then you are going to end up with better information than everybody else on the planet. And therefore, you could profit off it. Now, you said a whopping 40 G's. 40 G's is a lot of fucking money. It's It doesn't sound like a lot of money. We're in California. It even sounds like even less amount of money. I tell you, my folks being in the Midwest... Having 40 G's is a big deal uh, and they're considered blue collar, you know, Um, and it's, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. It was an easy 40 G's fine, you know, and uh, it just happened to come on a whim because he was like, oh, let me make a gamble out of this information that I heard. Fine. Okay. It's still insider trading. Because you talk to someone who knew some information, they just happen to be in your social realm, and this happens a lot, but you got caught. Therefore, you gotta you gotta pay the piper. Yeah. Well, let's let's be clear here. There's there's accusations. There hasn't been any proof outside of the fact that they know that Bly was at Pirelli's house the night before and that again they characterized his investment as unusual and I think when you say that a lot of people look at it there has to be like some sort of malice behind crimes like this I think that a lot has to do with the fact that this is so foreign to me like obviously there's a huge connection to our industry with it being Grand Marnier and Campari but I don't pay attention to the stock market I don't necessarily like i mean i understand the concept of investing but i don't really know how it works i understand insider i understand what insider trading is i get that i I totally understand and i and your reasoning 
makes absolute sense to me. I just want to make sure that you don't get too far off the rails and be like, this guy absolutely did it. They don't have proof of it. They're trying, they're trying to prove it. It's just, it's more of like a circumstantial thing. It's like he was here the night before the next day he makes this investment and then the company sells a few, a few weeks later and he makes 40 grand, you know? Sure. Yep. Absolutely. So, so it would, it would be like, it would be like if you and I were kicking it at the bar and uh, I heard that, uh, I don't know, Bob was about to leave restaurant A to go to restaurant B because he was, you know, he was telling me, you know, and for some reason we were able to make money off of that knowledge. This right? is a great example. I mean, you're totally. But I, <laughs> all right, but, but I feel like I feel like this is something that's sort of down to earth, you know, like especially for our industry. We kick it at the bar. We hear rumors. You know, the 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 streets talk. People talk about who's going where, who's fucking who, who did blow in the bathroom, who did this, right? We can't profit off of that information other than simply just maybe for our own mental health, keeping away from human beings who do certain things that we're just not that into versus a different caliber of social human being who has the ability to profit off of information like that. It's the same information. The difference is the caliber on which and and that you're operating on, right? Like you, it's the same. I imagine it to be the same sort of passing of information. The difference is, is that because you have access to it and you profit off of it in theory, whether it's even knowingly or not, I mean, shit, for all we know, they were both drunk and he woke up the next day and he was like, you know what? I've got a great idea. <laughs> well, he did, he did offer an answer for it. He and? said that he was, he was working off of intuition and had a gut feeling about it after seeing a folder with the name Grand Marnier written on it at one of his like friends' houses, but he didn't, it, it wasn't exactly clear if it was at that party that he saw it. So he was just going off of, off of intuition that he should invest in, um, in Campari at that time. Man, that definitely holds up. Well, I mean, I mean, it's just as, I mean, you know, again, I, I don't know how, how you go about proving something like this, you know? And and stuff, but again, this is also a world that's just so foreign to me when it comes to how insider training is is penalized and stuff like that. So I guess we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. But it definitely appears that Marco is gonna fight it because he is not willing to give up his reputation on on these accusations. Yeah, I'm with I'm with you on this one. I I, I don't this is again also way outside of my realm of understanding that it's all I can do is just, uh, you know, sit, sit back and try to break it down logically as best as I can, given, given my own world experiences. It's uh it's, I think it's going to be a fun one to, to follow and watch. And, you know, ultimately it's good to know that our industry is, you know, just as shitty as everybody else's, I guess. Yo. And in our top story tonight, and kind of a fun one because we've actually covered this book before, but Jim Murray released the 2021 version of the Whiskey Bible. And this is a guy 
who historically has always been controversial for his picks, going back to just a few years back, naming the Crown Royal Rye the best whiskey in the world, and is also credited with somewhat helping launch the popularity behind Japanese whiskey, in particular Yamazaki, back in 2013 when he picked that one as his whiskey of the year. And this year, old Jim is up to kind of his old tricks, picking a lot of really interesting um, interesting choices. So his whiskey of the year is the Alberta Premium Cast Strength. And for about – so this was released about midweek last week. And for about four to five days, that's the only thing that people were talking about was – Another crazy pick from Jim Murray and, you know, of course, brands are going out. They're talking about the different scores that they received. And then somewhat out of the blue for a lot of people, the whiskey consultant, writer, co-founder of Our Whiskey and former editor of ScotchWhiskey.com, Becky Paskin, who is highly respected, I'm sorry, respected throughout the industry came out and wrote a Facebook post that accuses Jim Murray of being excessively sexist and detrimental to women in whiskey and was just sick and tired of it. Um, She said, in the 2021 edition, there are 34 references to whiskey being sexy and many more crudely comparing whiskey to having sex with women. Uh, She would go on to say, and quote many times from the book, and I'm just going to give you one of them here. So in talking about Pendarin Kelt, which is uh, one of the whiskeys I actually sell out of Wales, Pendarin is made by an all-female team of distillers and blenders, yet this is how he refers to their whiskey. If this was a woman, I want to make love to it every night and in the morning and afternoon if I could find time and energy. Um. So obviously this sets off a little bit of a fever pitch and her post had over a thousand likes or loves or any kind of emotion, 217 comments, 411 shares. It's been on every whiskey group for the past few days. And Chris, I know this is relatively new information to you, but what are your feelings towards Jim Murray and his whiskey Bible? They're complicated. And I, I, I feel okay in saying that. Uh, you're not, you're not saying it online, so it's a, it's a safer space. I think that this is online. Uh, the difference is that it's just a conversation between you and I until we publish it. Um, uh, but I, I'm fine with saying that it's, it's complicated. Um, I think admitting that there is a sexualized air to alcohol and the place that it occupies socially in our lives, I think is okay. But I think that in doing so requires a sense of circumspect and responsibility to reading the fucking room. Circumspect? Circumspect. Like understanding your surroundings and understanding yourself and understanding the other people around you and how they interpret what it is that you're emoting that you are trying to communicate, you know, devolving into sex is easy. And for all likelihood, that's probably why Jim Murray got as popular as he did 
when he started writing, you know, and that's using evocative language like that is used for a reason. And it's certainly not something that Jim Murray created, right? I mean, go back talking Marquis de Sade and what have you, you know, I mean, there's writing about sex is, is nothing new, but in a world where it's not the only, it's not the only way to talk about our experiences. It's okay to talk about some experiences and equating them that way. It is not okay by any stretch to expect everybody to understand those experiences. And for someone like Jim Murray, who is so, um, we'll say popular, uh, you know, given whatever. Uh, polarizing might be the right word. He someone who has the spotlight so brightly shine upon him. He has to at very least recognize that there are people who might not understand what he's writing. And he might try at very least to, to widen the scope. You and I have been advocates for a long time about making making we'll say the public aware maybe not public aware I'm trying to find the right way to say this about those who might not be in the know get them to understand that there's a fuckload of women who like whiskey I mean I can, can't tell you the amount of times from behind the bar when I've had a dude show up and he's like, hey, let me get a beer and then can you make a, a girly drink for my for my date? And I say, OK, like an old fashioned or Manhattan. They're like, what? No, like uh, something sweet. And I'm like, I got to tell you, man, there's probably more women at this bar who drink old fashions than not. <laughs> and those guys are just beside themselves. I think someone like Jim Murray is that is someone who's reached reached the peak and never failed, you know, never never paused to look around to take a lay of the land. Yeah, I think he's definitely tone deaf to the room. And that's what a lot of people bring up. And a lot of people say, I mean, and you know, and even as Murray's been approached by it, he, of course, he's doubled down. And I quote him in saying, I am a professional writer and use a language that adults for the whiskey Bible is designed for can relate to. I paint pictures of whiskey. Um, you know, and, and I, and I think someone's you, definitely got like a, a flowery uh, self image. That's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I've never, I guess understood a lot of his stuff. And I think what really bothers me about the whole situation outside of the fact that, you know, he's, he's disenfranchising women, you know, with his writing and stuff like that. Again, this is something that I think we're all trying to be more sensitive to is being empathetic to other people in our scenarios that we're not considering. And, um, but you know, for the, for the previous 
few days before um, Becky made her post, you know, all the criticism was all the same of Jim, right? It was, oh, he's bought off. He has terrible taste and all that. I mean, I, in fact, I went back and forth with a um, whiskey enthusiast in Southern California about it. He was texting me and he was like, isn't this weird that he always only goes for these things? It's like, who cares, man? Like they're whiskey reviews. Like the fact that we put stock into any of these things drives me nuts. But I tell you, at the end of the day, if it helps me sell a few bottles of whiskey, uh, you know, I'll take it. But I'm not going to – I certainly, you know, don't take – and pun intended, his word is gospel. You know, I think he's ridiculous. But it helps me sell whiskey. So I'll, I'll use it. I don't really care. And sure, then now – you know, and I mean you and I have also – I mean we've enjoyed how how much he's pissed people off with his reviews. Absolutely. I mean, and and in fact, I think there was um, someone actually brought that to my attention that last year when this came out, I actually said I would love to carry the amount of clout that Murray does where my opinion can make so many people mad. Like that is the thing. Now, I mean, I certainly don't want to be known for um, Mm -hmm. uh, some of this, these extreme having having misogynistic uh, uh, views on whiskey and whiskey consumption. which only makes me feel that the fact that I never do tasty notes was like the best idea I've ever had as a, as a <laughs> professional in this business because they won't come back to haunt me. But I, I think the thing that is is started to emerge is you know now you have of course brands are coming out and they're um, they're decrying everything that that he's said and they're like we no longer support the whiskey bible and it's just kind of like it's like man three days ago you were talking about how you got this award and you got that award. And now you're saying that this guy sucks. And I mean, even in one major company was like, you know, we never got the full transcripts of, of Jim's reviews. Um, and now we're reviewing that, but we totally, you know, we don't agree with any of this stuff. And it's just kind of like, okay, but he's always written like this. So your ignorance towards the most recent edition does not cover everything you know like you can't just be like oh it's just this one-off it wasn't a one-off it's an all the time thing you know so well i think what that goes to show is that they they never really cared about what he said as long as it said what they wanted to hear right right? uh i mean that's fine but sort of say that i guess you know (laughs) like like we never we never actually read what he wrote uh, we just appreciated his palate, you know, I think would be a semi-legitimate defense, I guess, at this point in time. <laughs> well, I think that's the case with most people is most, most people didn't actually read the the notes. It was always just about the scores, which is understandable, you know, because it's like, why would you buy that book? There was no reason to, but so this has been really interesting to kind of see what, what people have said and um, how they go about that. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the right answer is. I mean, I totally think that this is a person that, you know, his, his career very well might be over. You know, you, there will not, not be any more whiskey Bibles. And I don't know if that's the right answer. I don't know if that's the right answer. I mean, for sure, that's going to end up, you know, some, you know, conservative old, old white man's going to be like, look, cancel culture got a hold of even the whiskey world. But it's not I mean, that's that's an oversimplification. And it's ultimately like if you're a jackass, you're going to get 
someone's going to eventually call you out for being a jackass, you know? So maybe don't be a jackass. Don't get mad that people are calling other people out for being a jackass. And well, maybe there's you just that already. I mean, you're, you're definitely seeing people doubling down. I, I compare it to like the Goya situation with Trump. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. President of Goya comes out, says that, you know, he loves Trump and everything like that and supports him. So then, half the country then goes, Oh, well we're not buying Goya anymore. And then the other half of the country who's never bought Goya before is like, we're buying Goya now, you know? <laughs> right. 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 And I've already, I've already seen this transpire in these whiskey groups where people are being like, well, I'm going out and buying this book now. It's like, you guys remember, remember last week when we pretty much all collectively hated this guy, <laughs> like go back to that. Like it's, well, funny. it's, it's because like his, it's not for the reasons they like. It's yeah. Like, like his whiskey know? opinion, which yeah. is ultimately what should be the basis of judgment. Right. And at least in this scenario should be the ultimate led to everybody almost universally thinking that he was a joke that was within the industry. And even people who are a little bit more savvy to whiskey and everything like that. However, then people start to take a closer look, finds out that his language doesn't really jive with what their belief systems are. And now when people turn around and say, you know, F this guy, we don't support him, we don't support this, those same people who are like, yeah, his his palate is trash is like, well, now I'm going to buy his book because, you know, PC culture. You're like, oh my God, what are we doing here? Like, can't you just be like, yeah, and his tasting notes or his scores suck too, but – it's, well, I think it comes down to, you know, when people want to double down on shit like that, it's it's because they don't want it's it's obviously a commentation commentation. That's not even a fucking word. It's a commentary in all kinds of words right now. Like it's a comment. It's a commentary on their own lives. They, you know, it's it, it they they don't want to be the ones who are held responsible for their own words. And therefore, they're going to support other people who say things that they. Can appreciate or they're afraid of you know being you know being penalized for i don't know man i uh i've always enjoyed uh jim murray's picks because they've always been unusual and i've always enjoyed how much it pissed everybody else off but that definitely wears wears thin at this point in time you know who's dope them over there okay so this week's don't follow for me is actually a further extension of growth and trying to you know better my position but also just better this industry with trying to learn from people and everything like that and uh today i had this really interesting interaction actually via Facebook, where we were talking about representation um, within the Hispanic community and how liquor.com decided to feature someone who was not of Hispanic descent as their first featured person for Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, and in getting into the conversation and talking with a few different people, it was like, well, how do we, how do we really represent that? And what do we do as um, you know, leaders in this industry? And I had this really interesting exchange with Alexis Marajas mm-hmm. and she just really laid out some really cool ways to, to help and to, um, you know, further, further inclusion and different things. And it was just, it was really proactive and to the point where, you know, there was a couple people who commented after who were like, 
it's like, wow, I can't believe a civil conversation that seemed like there was dispute at hand could, could end peacefully. So, um, you know, obviously I'm not going to be like, Hey, go at her on Facebook, but you can follow her on Instagram and her Instagram handle is, um, Lex So it's L E X period M I R A J E S. And that is my dope follow this week. Who's yours, Chris? Uh, so we got some homies here in town uh, who have come together and they're really sad about the fact that they don't get to have concerts anymore and they don't get to have uh, public gatherings and, and, and something, you know, places where artists really thrive. Um, and so a homie of ours uh, decided to fix that. And he started a, a festival a virtual festival called shelter fest. So my follow is, is shelter fest. You can find them on Facebook. You can find them on YouTube. You can find them on Instagram. Um, shelter fest. I think it's going to be something that's really fun. I think it's got a uh, wide ranging implications. I think that this is a formula. If it goes off well, that can be replicated in many different cities and communities around the country, if not world, I think it's, uh, I, and then, you know, hopefully there could be like a global shelter fest or a national shelter fest to be kind of cool. Cause there's, you know, a lot of people who are just hanging out indoors right now. And we have our artist homies who just, they're struggling. So, uh, shelter fest, I think is a great way for, for, those homies to really get at least a little bit of attention and a little bit of love and for all of us to sort of better ourselves by enjoying a little bit of art. Uh, so I definitely suggest people go out and follow that and um, buy tickets to Shelterfest and, and just sit back and enjoy like we do everything else in our lives. Uh, but in this case, it's, you know, it, it happens to do some good to the community as well. That's awesome. I'm really excited about that um, program. I'm excited to see how it turns out because I think it is going to be really cool and good. It's going to work. And hopefully, you know, if there's any industry that's been hit harder than ours, like you said, it's definitely the event industry. So hopefully it works. Yeah, I'm with you, buddy. All right. Music is by two talented brothers of moderate handsomeness, Leon and Chase Moore. Before we go and kill these bottles, I'm not going to kill this plans, but before we Drew goes and kills his bottle uh, that we've been drinking tonight, we ask that if you enjoyed this episode, please smash that subscribe button. Please leave us a five-star review because... You know, we're fucking dope. Yeah, I would smash that bottle tonight, but my two-year-old just woke up and she's giving me all kinds of background noise right I now. Could, I could definitely hear Hensley in the background and uh, it sounds like she needs your attention. Yeah, she um, fell asleep pretty early tonight because uh, she hasn't been feeling well. And um, it's now 1043 and my wife is already asleep. So I got this little two-year-old hanging out <laughs> next to me 
just making lots of little noises. But, um, you know, sometimes you can catch photos of her if you follow me on Instagram. But what you should follow on Instagram or Facebook is the Good Bottle Podcast. Definitely. And if you would like for us to cover a story or if you're affiliated with a brand that wants to be featured, please email us at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail.com. And as a reminder, you can purchase the bottles that we drink on this episode at goodbottleshop.com. And yeah. until next time. I can't find Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Wait, uh, here it goes. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> you ready? Sound Cheers again. <laughs> Sound effects. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs>